Good morning. So, for the past five weeks or so, maybe more than that, probably, uh, we have discussed various parts of our Sunday morning worship liturgy. The gathering, the confession, the scripture, the sermon, the prayers of the people. In the next few weeks, we will learn more about the offering, the communion, and the benediction. Today, we talk about the one element of worship that is not assigned to a single role or position. It is not confined to a single place in the order of liturgy, nor is it limited by the role it plays. The part of our worship we are isolating today is more like a spiritual fluid that connects all the other parts, bridging, reflecting on, even punctuating on all the other elements of the liturgy. We're talking about music, of course. The prelude and postlude, for instance, you might say serve as spiritual bridges. The prelude eases eases us into a worship-ready state of mind, away from the mundane, towards the holy, just as the postlude helps to once again soften the edges that separate worship from everyday life. The opening hymn does something entirely different. The opening hymn, when it's entirely successful, very often sets the stage thematically, giving us a hint at what we'll be focusing on. As we sing the hymn, we become synchronized and unified. We breathe together as we prepare to sing each new phrase. We fall into the same rhythmic patterns. We find our place in the harmony even when the harmony isn't perfect. Our minds begin to focus on the ideas behind the words we are singing, and we, all of us, become one, body and mind and spirit. Each time we sing together, our unity is further strengthened. The middle hymn gives us a chance to reflect on the sermon in a different way, usually helping us to circle back to the scripture reading and ideally landing on the theme of the sermon. The closing hymn further rounds out our worship, driving us out into the world with physical and spiritual mental uplift, hopefully with a tune and a phrase of text that can help us hold on to just a bit of what we experienced that morning. The peace response usually will add an exclamation point to the joy we feel once we are assured of God's grace and have had a moment to share that joy with others. Additionally, once we've broken apart to meet each other individually, it brings us back to our place once again as a unified whole. The anthems and choral responses may offer a new perspective on the scripture, the prayers, or the sermon, or they may prepare us to pray or confess or even just to listen more intently to the sermon. The offertory anthem or music gives the ushers time to take the offering, of course, but, but it also elevates our prayers of gratitude, those prayers we pray each time we pass the offering plate. If we are lucky, the music of worship helps us further break down the imagined barriers between us and God, allowing us to be in God's time, in God's temple, in God's baptismal waters, making direct contact with the holy. And that is what we strive for, we musicians of the church, and that is, above all, what we want for all of you. I'll take just a moment at this time to say a word of gratitude, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, to our children and our youth and our directors and our adult choir. Why don't you guys stand up for a second? Can you all stand? Adult choir. If you're not in a choir, if you're not in a choir, you may not realize how much time they devote to the work that they do here. And it is with, without them, I believe that our worship would, we would still worship, but it may not soar quite the way it does or the, what we hope it does. So we give them a great deal of thanks. They are an amazing group of dedicated people, and I, I feel so honored to have, to have them to work with. So what about these words of John Wesley? 
Why so serious? And doesn't it sound like he should just be talking to the choir? Was he really addressing the congregation? After all, singing in church is basically opt-in for the people sitting in the pews, isn't it? Well, clearly John Wesley didn't think so. Rather, it appears he thought the congregation's hymn singing was essential. And to be clear, he was talking about hymns, not the prelude or anthems or other types of music. He was talking to the congregation about the hymns. So let's think about each of these directions. Learn these tunes before you learn any others. Why these? Why these first? I'm supposing there were three primary reasons. One, because if you learn these hymns, then when you come to church, you'll be free to fully participate without having to think about the mechanics of the music. Two, because when you sing, you pray twice, they say, and having these prayers at your disposal at any given moment would benefit anyone. Adding a good melody to to a line of poetry is a great way to remember the poem, yes? Religion has been on to that trick since way before John Wesley. It's a classic learning tool. And three, if everyone comes to church with these hymns learned, then the congregation becomes like a choir, unified, focused on God, hearts brimming with zeal. Right, choir? And physically, mentally, spiritually, fully engaged, not just singing, but worshiping. Rule number two, sing them exactly as they're printed without altering or mending them. Why so strict? Again, if everyone is marching to their own beat and singing to their own tune, unity falls apart. We lose the body of Christ. We become little rambling members. <clears throat> sing all. Sing, see that you join with the congregation as frequently as you can. Let not a slight degree of weakness or weariness hinder you. If it is a cross to you, take it up. You will find it a blessing. This is my favorite one. And I find it to be so incredibly true. If you sing like you're tired, you'll be more tired after that. But even if you're tired and sick and just not inspired that day, the very act of singing with your congregation or your choir or just your friend can overcome all of that and bring you to a place of fortitude, if not full-on ecstasy. That is why laborers sing and why gyms know to pump up the volume and why a mild case of the blues can be cured by just singing your heart out or getting a dance fix. Take it up and you will find it a blessing. Four, sing lustily and with good courage. Be aware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. Be not afraid. Half dead singing? Well, yes, that is worse than not singing at all and only makes the dreariness worse. Sing the hymns as though you were singing your favorite top 40 hit, full of heart, full of emotion. Sing it like you mean it, and eventually you will. He knew that. He knew what he was talking about. But he also says, sing modestly, do not bawl so as to be heard above or distinct from the rest of the congregation that you may not destroy the harmony, but strive to unite your voices. What? Modestly, yet lustily? How does that work? I do say such things to the choir on a regular basis, in fact. Truly, you must give it your heart, or you, nor God, nor anyone else, will get a thing out of it. But you can't completely lose your mind over it, or you will be the only one enjoying it. You will no longer be singing for God and rather singing with the con- or and rather singing with rather than singing with the congregation you will be dis- singing despite the congregation. Needless to say I'm not too terribly worried about this being a problem for this congregation. Um, in fact um, noting that there are t- in fact the two extremes I would choose the bawling over the half dead singing any day. So feel free to bawl if you have to do one or the other. 
<clears throat> Number six, sing in time. Whatever time is sung, be sure to keep it. Do not run before nor stay behind, but attend closely to the leading voices. Attend close. Stay in time. Why? Same as before. If you are out of sync, it will drain the life out of you. It'll drain the life out of the music and everyone else if you're noisy about it. If you're in sync, the energy will flow, the music will surge, and the spirit will soar. Finally, he says, above all, above all, sing spiritually. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing God more than yourself or any other creature. In order to do this, attend strictly to the sense of what you sing. And see that your heart is not carried away with the sound, but offered to God continually. So shall your singing be such as the Lord will approve here and reward you when he cometh in the clouds of heaven. Well, I couldn't have said it better myself. As an exercise, let's open to number 561 in your hymn book. Everybody, show me your hymn book. What does it look like? Thank you. Turn to 561. 561. I'll give you a minute. I don't need that one. I need the actual handbook. But that's okay. Great. Here we go. Okay, I have the words. I just needed to... Um, I'm going to actually, actually have to play this in a second, and I realize my, my music is not ready. It's interesting to have to do all the transitions as well as the talking. I will say, this is, this is a bit challenging. Um, <laughs> so, looking at number 561, we have four verses here. Let's sing a little bit. It's not... Um, not the most regular of tunes. Look at the bottom. We have a first and a second ending. Well, actually, it's a first through third ending and a fourth ending. That means you go to the next to the last two measures, sing that hallelujah, and then return back to the beginning. That's always confusing, isn't it, when you have two endings? Okay, so we'll do that three times, and then we go to the end. Now, we're also going to sing this a little differently than we usually do. A bit like we attempted with the opening hymn, we're going to not all sing everything. The first verse, we will all sing. The second verse, our tenors and basses, tenors and basses, show me your hands. Men out there and some ladies, sing low too. Tenors and basses, raise your hand. Male folk, raise your hands. There you go. Okay, you will be singing the second verse. The third verse, sopranos and altos, ladies, children. Children, hello, over there. Youth choir, except for the boys back there. Okay? They will be singing the third verse and the fourth verse. Everybody will sing together. Got that? First verse? Second verse? Third verse? Sopranos, altos. Fourth verse? Okay, now let's sing a little bit. So, first we have to breathe together. Sit up nice and tall. Okay, we're going to hold, so this is, this is one way to hold the hymn book. We can hold it like this. That's super effective if you're singing to yourself. But, but since we're singing together, let's all hold our books up. Yes, much better. Now, after me, I'm going to give you line by line. When in our music God is glorified. Sing. When in our music God glorified. This is a hard one. Listen. And adoration leaves no room for pride. And adoration 
It's no room for pride. Now listen. It is as though the whole creation cried. It is as though the whole creation cried. Now listen. Alleluia. Alleluia. Now why do we think we end like that? Why do we not? So normally you would the Alleluia. It, it might end like that, right? We normally end, you know, like going down. That's the traditional way to end a song. Why does this one end not that way? Anybody have an idea? Alleluia. Because because it's not over. Because the alleluias will continue into the day and into the night. It doesn't ever end. The alleluias go on and on and on. Right? In our hearts and in our minds and in our prayers and in our lives. The alleluias go. Because alleluia is just another word for a sung prayer. Okay? So that's the deal. Stand up. I'm, I apologize for making you practice so much. Well, okay, I guess I'm going to be done practicing because it's now late. But let's, let's, let's do it. Okay.